Psalm 122 begins, I was glad when they said to me, let us come into the house of the Lord. I certainly think we have much reason to be glad to be together here today. What a great blessing it is. See so many here in person. We know there's many more joining us online. We're thankful for you being with us today. We are here to worship the great God who has loved us so deeply, as was just pointed out. We cannot help but respond in love and in worship, and that is what we are meant to do. And together, we're meant to build each other up in doing that, to stir one another up to love and to good works, to encourage one another to know the Lord better, and to deliver ourselves to Him, because He's delivered Himself, himself for us. We've been looking at these, this text in Acts chapter 2. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at these people that had come together on this day of Pentecost. These are uh, Jews that were there from all over the world. We'll look at that in just a moment. We sort of learned a little bit about who they are, but we mostly saw what they did as they responded to this message that Peter preached about the one that they had put to death, that they had taken by lawless hands and put to death, but the one whom the Lord raised up and made him Lord and Christ. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and they responded, what shall we do? Well, they understood that Jesus was Lord, and they knew they needed to understand what he would have them do with their lives. And so they began to uh, participate steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We looked at that word steadfastly last time with a little bit of detail. It's from this Greek word that means to be strong toward, to endure in. And the ideas of continual perseverance and some of the other translations sort of bring that out. You have they devoted themselves in the English standard they were continually devoting themselves in the New American Standard, and they persevered in the Darby uh, translation. All of those bring out this concept of a continual striving to do something. And what they were striving to do was to learn this doctrine. What is it that the Lord wanted them to do? And so as they were doing that, there were other things that came about in the teaching from the apostles. And that's what we'll be looking at a little bit more today. We want to see how they began to live in response to what the apostles were teaching them and what this new relationship was they were in with the Lord. And so today I want to begin to have a little deeper look at this question of their persevering in, of their continually striving for fellowship. What does that word mean? It really means to participate in something. It means to share in or communicate in something. It's from that Greek word koinonia that in, indicates a partnership. They had become partners. The word fellow is kind of an old-timey word. We don't really say that much, sometimes jokingly, maybe in the song for he's a jolly good fellow. But we do occasionally hear the word fellowship. It's a Bible word, sort of, more than it is in any other place that we talk about it. But we need to understand what it is that a fellow is. <laughs> a fellow is a partner. A fellow is sharing in or communicating in some specific thing. And the word fellowship, and what we're going to see over and over as we go through these texts today, describes a togetherness, a unity, a coming together to share in something. And it indicates necessarily that there is a common goal that fellows are sharing in. They're seeing the same uh, vision, and they're heading in the same direction. Kind of interesting, this morning we were talking about church leadership. That's part of the shepherd's Goal is to make all the sheep become fellow sheep of the same flock. <laughs> That's the idea. That they are united together in their common desire and in their common goal. And we're certainly going to see that already in this text that was read this morning, verses 42 through 47, over and over we get glimpses of fellowship. The word koinonia is used in various forms in this very text several times. And so we'll be looking at some of those examples as we go through this. But I want to ask you to consider their situation. We talked about this a little bit last time. These are people who have taken on the belief in a man who was put to death for being a blasphemer. Most of Israel did not respond the way these 3,000 did. There were many more than 3,000 there. These 3,000 responded to the teaching about Jesus. They believed that they wrongly had condemned the Son of God that he was not a blasphemer, that he was what he claimed to be, that he had resurrected as he promised. And so now they are serving this man, but they are going to be rejected for having accepted what the rest have not. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, that these are people who have come from all over the world. 
There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That word dwelling is a little bit misleading in the New King James. Other versions have staying in Jerusalem. They just happened to be there. They didn't live in Jerusalem. They had come there from all over the place. We find out in verses 9 and following where they're from. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. There's a lot of people from all over the world here. They had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, likely, and had stayed on for Pentecost. And they have come from a long way away, many of these people. And they brought limited resources. They intended to stay from Passover to Pentecost, 50 days. But they are now Christians. (laughs) They've now come together. They now want to stay and continue learning the apostles' doctrine. And their resources that they brought for a limited trip are starting to run out. (laughs) And so there's this situation now where you've got all of these others who are fellows in belief that are seeing the need of of their partners in this new thing that they're a part of. Besides that, the ones who are resident in Jerusalem and the ones who are going to be going back to their synagogues where they came from are now being kicked out of those synagogues. They're no longer going to have a place to return to. I want you to uh, follow with me quickly a few texts in the book of John where we see what a frightening thing that would have been. We may not understand that as well, uh, but I want you to think about what's being said here. In John 9, you have the case of this man that Jesus healed who was blind. And as they begin to question him, who did this for you? They go to talk to the man's parents and the man's parents are very cryptic. Well, he's old enough, go talk to him. And there's a reason why, John 9, verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So why are these people trembling at being put out of the synagogue? Let's go a little bit further up in uh, John 12, verse 42. John 12, verse 42. Here are the religious leaders, some of the rulers from the synagogues. Here's their response. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. (laughs) Some of the religious leadership really was starting to believe in Jesus. Nicodemus was one. But they were afraid to confess before the Pharisees, sort of this political religious party, because they would kick them out of all of the things that they had to do with the synagogue. The synagogue was a center of cultural and religious life. The synagogues were family groups, and to think about getting kicked out of that family group was a fearful prospect. Look at John 16 and verse 2. I think this one really hits home. It's interesting what Jesus says here and the way he says it. Uh, verse, uh, Verse 1, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble, they will put you out of the synagogues. It would have been interesting if he had just stopped there, but what does he compare that to? Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. Wait a second. What do you mean kicked out of synagogues? Well, that's one thing. Kills you? That's something else. But Jesus spoke those in the same breath. That's the concept. You will no longer have the protection, the coverage of the religious leadership. You will be seen as a heretic, as a blasphemer, just like this blasphemer you're following. And they may put you to death for it. This is a frightening prospect for these people who have come together. And so they've lost their resources. Now they don't have the synagogue to give them help. They are sort of just lost in the midst of Israel. And yet they're not. (laughs) These 3,000 people suddenly have each other. It's all they've got. (laughs) But I want to suggest to you, they've got each other (laughs) by the grace of God. I want you to feel what they're feeling. And I want you to consider that we're really in a very similar situation. We have been put out of society because of what we believe. Most of society doesn't believe in what we're teaching. Most of society now is going to the point of saying, if you teach that, that's hatred. That doctrine's hatred because it excludes people. Jesus excluded people if they were not willing to humbly submit to his will and follow the God who loves them so much he wants to transform them into something better than they would make of themselves. That's what his desire is. And so here are these people, without their family group, without the hope that they had once stood in, 
But they've got something so much better. We can understand when we read the book of Hebrews why they might be tempted to go back. Because of the persecution of being outside the synagogue. Because of the persecution from the religious leadership. If they would just accept Judaism and hold on to Christ somewhere over here, that'd be okay. But the Hebrew writer says you can't do that. In Galatians, Paul says you've rejected Christ if you go back. Don't do that. Christ is sufficient. And these people understood it. And so they needed each other more than, than they ever had. And they began to cling together then as fellows. And they really understood, you get me and I get you. We are serving the same Lord. These people out here, they don't understand. We've got a job to do. We've got to keep each other built up while we're teaching them. But we've got to keep each other built up. They needed each other. And this was God's design. So I want us to look at, in these texts, what that fellowship looked like in the Apostles' Doctrine. What did the Apostles teach about fellowship? What would they have been teaching these people who are now banding together? These people were coming to hear the Apostles' Doctrine. We had the benefit of seeing what the Apostles wrote about these things a little bit later on, things they would have been teaching from the get-go. This is the doctrine of Christ. And so what do we see about fellowship in the Apostles' Doctrine? Well, the first thing we notice is that fellowship begins in the Lord, and then it's with men. You don't just have fellowship with, with anybody. <laughs> this fellowship that they're a part of is because they embraced the Lord. <laughs> now, they could have had fellowship with everybody if they had just stayed as Israelites, <laughs> as these proselytes that had come down. If they were just saying we're willing to keep these, these Hebrew texts, but they were putting that aside and saying there's a new covenant that we're a part of. And so now they have this, this fellowship with Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. What a great blessing this is when you think about what's being offered. It is unfathomable to think that the God of heaven would call us into fellowship with himself, but that's what he's doing through Christ. It's something that the Jews would have seen as almost blasphemous. What do you mean you have this personal relationship? And Jesus said, the Father, no, my Father and I are one. And then we are called on as children of God to call on our Father, not just the Father, God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You become a fellow with God's Son? That's what the New Testament really talks about, is we become engaged in the very work that he was doing. We become like him. It's what the word Christian means. We become fellows with Christ, co-partakers of the divine nature and the divine promises that Christ came and gave. It's an amazing thing to consider. And so the fellowship begins in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. This is the appeal. Uh, I appreciate uh, Grady pointing out how the, the love of Christ compels us. That's in this general context here. I'm going to pick up at verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God wants to have fellowship with you. He wants to bring you in. And so there's this reconciliation that happens. He wants to make you a partaker in the things of God. He wants to make you share in all the good things that he's promised. He wants you then to communicate that, which is a form of sharing, with other people. All of this we do with God in Christ. That is what reconciliation looks like. We become co-laborers, co-participants, fellow uh, uh, servants in the field of God. Over and over, those concepts Paul brings out in his letters, over and over and over. That's fellowship. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the language continues, and I just love to think about what this language means, to think about this in terms of the apostles teaching these things to these people who had come together as this sort of motley group now on the day of Pentecost. So 1 Peter 2, here's what God's desiring in verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God has brought you in. His desire is to have you as his own special people 
in fellowship with him. What a beautiful blessing to think about. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 puts it this way. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers, fellows in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That is an amazing thing to consider. That's what God wants to do with us. He wants to sanctify us, that we can become then partakers in the divine nature, which is holy. If he can make us holy by having us escape the, the lust of the world. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 talk about the result of that, the promise that's held out for those who, who come to him. Uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And that concept of reigning with Christ is all through the New Testament as well. We become fellow heirs of his promise, fellow soldiers in his battle, fellow princes in his kingdom. That's the concept. So this idea of fellowship first with Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Obviously, that's a great and a fantastic blessing. It's what we're longing for. So what the Jews were longing for was real fellowship with God. They were set apart from God by this ministry at the tabernacle. They had that. But they were still at a distance. Jesus has taken us into the Holy of Holies, the Hebrew writer states. We've got real fellowship with God, but that automatically then brings with it fellowship with others who are serving God. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Think about that. Fellowship with God will necessarily bring us to have fellowship with those who are serving God necessarily it brings us into fellowship with one another. That's God's design. It is so wrong sometimes, this concept that we have, this rugged individualism, that I'm just going to serve God on my own. I don't need anybody else. You know, I can, I've got a Bible. I've got all I need. The Bible's all you need. All things that pertain to life and godliness are here. But in the Bible, it says we need each other too. In fact, that's a bonus that we're given. I dare say those 3,000 on Pentecost were not looking at these other people around saying, what are these guys doing here? I can do this on my own. They were thankful that they had those other 3,000 around them. They stuck to the apostles and said, teach us what we need to know. You've been doing this longer. How do we do this? You knew him personally. How do we do this? They didn't say, I'll, I'll figure it out. But it's such an unfortunate thing, especially in our country, this, this concept of the lone wolf Christian. They can just read some self-help books and, and he'll get it done. We need each other, brethren. God put us together no differently than he put those people together on Pentecost. I want you to see that you stand in that same situation. The world out there will devour you. <laughs> it's working to devour all of us. Satan is there and he can't wait for the weakling that's straying off thinking he's the strong one. <laughs> we need each other. And God put us together naturally with each other. It is interesting that sometimes we talk about disfellowship. and We're going to be talking about our need to, to deal with those who are walking outside, who are struggling. We don't find that word disfellowship in the New Testament at all. We do have this concept of withdrawing from a broken fellowship, though. Someone who has just clearly shown, I don't really want to be a part of God's people. What, in the end, they're showing is that they don't really want to do the things that the Lord has said for them to be doing. It's a shame. But it's hard to continue in fellowship with someone who has no longer made themselves a fellow. Is no longer sharing in, participating in, communicating in the good things of God but has turned back to something else. Look at the language in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 20. I just want to share a few verses here that help us to sort of see this concept. There, there is a possibility of broken fellowship. It's something we don't long for, something we try to keep from happening. He says here in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. There's a possibility 
of having fellowship with something else outside of God. He's talking to Christians here that are perhaps being tempted to participate in some of these cultish rituals in Corinth and thinking, well, I know better. Those demons aren't real. I can go do that. He says, no, I don't want you to break fellowship with God's people to go sit at the table of demons. That's exactly what he'll say in a few moments. If you're partaking of those, you're sitting at the table with demons. You're no longer in fellowship with God or his people. We need to be careful about what we're doing that will break our fellowship with God and his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, here's the instruction Paul gives for those who would, would continue in fellowship with darkness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse, uh, just a second ago, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Clearly here we're talking about being yoked together with unbelievers. But is it possible that someone in our fellowship might begin to act like an unbeliever, reject what the things of God are to follow after the things of the world, or even, as Paul was warning in 1 Corinthians, the things of demons, the things that are horrible and they're against what God's nature would uphold. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11, we also get uh, a hint of this concept. Ephesians verse 5, verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. <laughs> is it possible that there is broken fellowship with those who once were fellows in the battle? Those who have turned aside, those who perhaps by neglect have just given themselves over to following after doctrines of demons, being captivated by the world. We've got to work hard, brethren, to keep that from happening. But there may come a time when that does happen. We're no longer fellows with those who are fellows with the works of darkness. And there may come a time to, to make a clear break with that. Certainly, when we look through the rest of this, this lesson on fellowship, we'll understand what a painful thing that'll be. It's like cutting off a part of our own body. It's someone who is a part of us, who has partaken and shared in good things, but no longer desires that. And it's a real loss when that happens. It is not part of God's design that we should break fellowship, but sometimes it happens and there has to be a clear distinction made. The truth is, when we look at fellowship the way that it was taught by the apostles, it really changes our perspective, our attitude, regarding ourself and regarding others. Look at Philippians chapter 3. I love the, the beauty of the way Paul writes these things. The, the Spirit really used him well. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, there's such poetry uh, in the Spirit's writing. What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. This is Philippians 3, 7. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Changes your perspective on the world. As, as our brother was pointing out, if one died, then all have died. We've died to Christ. We're in the fellowship. We're sharing in his sufferings because he died to this world and he wants us to die to this world too. How often did he say, take up your cross? <laughs> he didn't say, wear a cross necklace. He said, take up your cross, crucify yourself, die with me. Be buried with me. Rise to a new life. That's what Christ wanted. And that is our fellowship and sharing in his sufferings. It's a willingness to empty ourselves for his sake. We want to be fellows with Christ because he made himself a fellow to us. He came and partook of flesh and blood so that he could be like us and could die like us and pay the price for our sins that we couldn't pay. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, text we know really well, but I want you to notice the concept of fellowship here. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, 
having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If we are fellows of Christ, we empty ourselves of what the world is offering for his sake. If we're fellows of one another, we empty ourselves for what the other needs for their sake. It changes our perspective. It changes our attitude regarding who we are and who they are. They are my fellow. When I call you brother or sister, and I am very pointed about doing that because I need to remind myself who you are, but I want to remind you who you are, and I mean it when I call you that. Many of you have said thank you to me for that. Because I call you sister, and I mean it from my heart. I call you brother, and I mean it from my heart. And I want you to call me a brother from your heart. We are fellows. We are participants. We are sharing in this good grace that God has given us and in the struggles and in all that we're doing. Fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit teaches us to share in the needs of one another. It is the Spirit who unites us. Ephesians chapter 4, these articles in our newsletter, I'm writing about this walking in unity, walking together, this concept that there's one Spirit who animates this body. And we all need the same Spirit. We need to be walking in unity with Him. God has made us one in Christ. So if we look at the Apostles' Doctrine, we see there's teaching of emptying ourselves for Christ's sake, emptying ourselves for the benefit of our brethren, being united in, as fellows, as brothers, as sharers, as partakers, all of those things. Then what do we see in the practice of the early church? As they've taught the church to do this, how do we see the church carrying these things out? You can do no better than to start where they did. In Acts chapter 2, this text is so rich when you're talking about fellowship. That's exactly what this text is describing. I just want to read it again. I want you to listen for the togetherness, the unity in this text. Acts 2, starting at verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's such a beautiful picture of fellowship <laughs> over and over and over. You see that they're together. You see that they're seeing things in common. The idea is that they're sharing of themselves with one another. They're sharing of their goods, but it's because they're sharing of themselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us for his sake. They were impoverished, the Macedonians he was talking about, and yet they were willing to give. And we'll see that in just a moment. But they gave to those among them who had need. They were thinking about one another and, and their fellows. What do they need? Day by day, the English Standard Version says they were together. They had a common purpose, and so they were meeting together every day to find out the doctrine from the apostles, to know how they ought to live, and then encourage each other to be doing that. They broke bread in their homes from house to house, the New King James says. They were sharing of their food with each other. They were sharing of their time with each other. We'll talk about that one in just a moment. And they experience then gladness and simplicity of heart, the New King James says. That phrase, simplicity of heart, talks about generosity. That you're, you're humbled. You're not thinking about what's mine. You're thinking about, how can I use this for others? And there's a gladness in that. And as they came together in fellowship, praising God and having favor with all the people, I want you to notice this strange-sounding thing at the end of verse 47. The Lord added to the church... Those who were being saved. Added to the church daily, those who are being saved. Added to them, some versions have. Now when we think about that, aren't we thinking, well, the Lord is adding to himself these people that are being saved. And that is absolutely true. That is what's going on. The, the Lord is adding people, congregating people to himself. But that's not what the text points out here. The text here is emphasizing togetherness. The Lord added to them to the church. The church is the people. The church is not some organization. God was blessing them with more and more soldiers, more and more companions, more and more fellows 
to help them stay strong. Because all outside were those who were going to be naysayers, where those who were going to try to bring them down. But God was building them up by giving them more and more and more and more people to work with them. What an amazing blessing. Do we think about our brethren that way? God gave you to me. God gave me to you. What a blessing that is. That's the perspective we get at the end of Acts chapter 2, and what a gorgeous uh, text that is. As we move on a little bit further into Acts chapter 4, we're looking at the practice now. As they're learning from the apostles, what are they doing? Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. They're of one heart and one soul. We see that injunction given several times in the New Testament, but here we see it in practice. One heart and one soul. You know what that means? They're one body. <laughs> They're united. Their life force is united. <laughs> That's incredible to think about that. It's amazing to think about that in our day and age. <laughs> but that's what they were doing. They were knitting themselves together in the service of the Lord. They had a shared purpose and a shared desire. Their heart was bent on the same thing. <laughs> they had all things in common, so they shared their goods. We saw that already in Acts 2. In Acts 2, it seems like it was the result of this lack of, of resources because these people had stayed. What's going on by Acts 4? We're further along in the time. And so there may be persecutions already happening at this point. We certainly see some of that in chapter 3. This, the ones that were kicked out of the synagogues may be losing their family support at this point, but they've still got each other. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. What things? Food and clothing, specifically in the context there. How did Jesus take care of that? By these people that were all around, that were engaged as fellows in the needs of their other fellows. You need food? I need food. I've got food. Here, come eat at my house with gladness and simplicity of heart. You need clothing? I need clothing. I've got some extra clothing. Come here, have these clothes. Over and over, we see that pattern in the New Testament. Barnabas is is uh, held up for his example in doing that. He sold land. We're not, we didn't read that in our text here. It was the very next part of the text. He sold some land he had to be able to produce so that he would have goods to give to these who needed. They were fellows. They had compassion for one another. Some people have tried to say that this text looks like communism. They have all things together. They're all, uh, none of the possessions are their own. And I, I heard a great quote I want to share with you. This is the word communion, by the way. This is not the word communism. This word koinonia is often used for that word communion that we see in other places. And so the difference between communism and communion. Communism says, what's yours is mine. Give me. <laughs> communion, koinonia says, what's mine is yours. Take it. <laughs> Do you see the difference there? One is a forced giving. The other is my heart grows in compassion toward you. I see you as a fellow and I give. The word that's used to talk about communism most is comrade. That's a word that means fellow. That's the ideal behind communism, is that everybody sees there's a need for others, and so they just willingly give. That's not the way communism ends up working. Man's hearts are not really bent toward giving to another. It's forced on them to do that. But in God's economy, when he brings us together and we recognize who we are and what he's given us as resources to serve him and to serve one another, our hearts will become glad and filled with generosity. And we'll learn it's better to give than to receive the words of the Lord that are quoted later in the book of Acts. It's amazing to think about that great difference. A changed heart will give generously. A forced heart will give grudgingly. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. That's what he's looking for is communion. And we'll talk about that example in just a moment. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I want to show something else. We've been looking at this giving of their goods, but I want to think of something else that they did. Acts chapter 12, I'm not going to read this whole text of verses 1 through 12, but it's when James, the brother of John, is killed by the sword. Peter is then put in prison. And while he's in there, constant prayer, verse 5, is being offered up for him by the church. Well, we know the story. An angel comes, brings him out of the prison, takes him down the street, 
And he goes to John Mark's house, goes to Mary and John Mark's house, where they're praying together. I want to think about that for just a moment. As they're praying together here, as was their custom, the text right before we read in chapter 4, they had just raised their voice in one accord to the Lord and prayed together, Psalm 2 and then some other things, and asked God to give them strength. Now they're praying together again while Paul's in prison, uh, Peter's in prison. And did you notice? He knew they'd be praying, and he knew where they'd be. (laughs) That's where he goes in the middle of the night. The middle of the night. (laughs) He goes there to John Mark's house, and he finds them all there praying for him. (coughs) That indicates a couple of things. One, this is not something new or special. It's not like, wow, I've got to figure out where they are now. I'm sure they're going to get together because this is a big event. No, (laughs) no. He just knew where they were going to be. This was a regular practice because they are fellows. They spent time together in prayer. When Peter and John had been beaten and they went to find their brethren, that's where they went first, and they just all started praying together, raised up their voices in one accord. I dare say this is part of of communion that we just don't share in as much as we ought to. This is amazing. You think about the compassion these people had as they're praying for Peter and he knows just right where to go. He goes right to the house of John Mark. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we see another aspect of their fellowship. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. (laughs) There was a possibility that this Gentile-Jew division was going to be really major. But what happened is when they realized God's grace is going out to the Gentiles, they gave them the right hand of fellowship. We go with you in this. We can't go because we're here. You go. We're with you. We're praying for you. We're giving you resources is probably what this has in mind. We'll help pay for your travel. We want to be a part of this work that you're doing. God is blessing them. Just don't forget to take care of the poor. And then we see the the results of that later. Paul goes around taking up a collection for the poor later on in Jerusalem. He was eager to do that. Those are two portions of the fellowship. Preaching the gospel to those who are poor in spirit. Those who need what God is offering for salvation. And also taking physical means to those who are suffering in their poverty. Finally, I mentioned 2 Corinthians 8 a few times. This is such a beautiful passage, that a description of fellowship in a way that we talk about often, perhaps, with the giving of our uh, material goods. But this, what Paul says here about the Macedonians is just so beautiful. 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They begged in their poverty. They begged to participate in, to participate in, that's fellowship, that word there, the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. We want to be a part. It seems to indicate perhaps that Paul recognized their destitute state and said, you guys don't have to. We, we get, we'll get stuff from us elsewhere. And they said, no, we want to. In fact, we've made provision to be able to. They sold things perhaps. They went beyond what looked to be their ability, thinking they did like Barnabas. They found a way to give some goods that they could then send along. This probably wasn't just money. This could have been clothing and other goods. Think about Jesus saying, don't keep your treasure where moth and rust can destroy. A rust would destroy money, but moths destroy garments. <laughs> There's value in garments. You think of Lydia, the, the, the dyer of purple. She was selling purple dye because garments were so uh, important. That's a good way to, to, to carry goods around. But any, any way it happened, these people were able to come up with gifts to send, and they begged, please take our gift to the, to the saints in Judea. When you think about this kind of fellowship, as we look at this last example in Philippians chapter 1, I'm getting to the point here in just a moment, but I, I just want to impress on you what fellowship looks like. <laughs> it's not just sitting together in the same building on Sunday. 
That's not fellowship. There's so much more than that. What a blessing that we've come to the house of the Lord and we're together. There's so much more. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are fellows, my version says partakers with me, of grace. You're with me in my chains. I'm praying for you with joy in my chains because you're here with me. Your heart and my heart are united as fellows, is what he's saying here. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, we see a little bit more concrete what he means by that. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared, that you fellowship, that you participated in, that you communicated with my distress. You Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Think about this fellowship. It's easy to see how the word fellowship over the time, began to describe financial help. You are participating in their need, and that's really the way we take care of things here. And it's, it's, it's pretty efficient to do it that way. But there was so much more than just sending money. They were sharing in serving the saints is what they wanted to do in 2 Corinthians. We want to serve these brethren. How can we do that? Well, we can send them things. I can't go to Jerusalem, but you're going. I can send stuff with you for them. Let's do that. Let's share with them in their need. It's so easy, really, to sort of throw money at something. But it's not as easy to share in prayers, in emotional and spiritual support, to share in the giving of our time with other people. Sometimes the easy part is just sending the money. But Paul knew these people were in his heart and that he was in theirs. And that's what made this fellowship so real. I want to think about what he says here to the Philippians. If you could not send money or good somewhere, in what ways would you beg to participate in somebody's need, a fellow brother's need? You don't have money or any goods you can send. How would you beg to participate if Paul was going to see them? I think that that's worth thinking about. The Macedonians wanted to be involved as much as they could. What's amazing is that in all of this, they saw unknown to them brethren, distant brethren, as fellows. They're in the same battle. <laughs> They're fighting the same war. They're waging the same war. If they can see that at distant brethren, can we see it here in the congregation where we are? Among brethren, we know by name. We see their faces. Are we serving in the way that they were serving? So the question comes, is fellowship, as taught by the apostles, as practiced by the early church, is it seen among us? Because as we've been pointing out, our situation is not that different from theirs. We're from all over the place. Not all of us here are Pittsburghers. And they don't have a regional tie together necessarily. Some of us don't even have the same national tie. There's at least four of us here that were born in a different country, maybe more than that. It's amazing to think about why in the world are we together? What is our bond? Our bond is Christ. Our fellowship is first with Him. But look what He's given us as a blessing. Each other. So we're here together seeking the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. That's what they were doing in Acts 2. That's what we're doing today. That's why we do these things every week. It's why we have the Bible open. It's why we encourage you to study along. It's why we encourage you to bring your friends so they can see what we're doing and be a part of this. We want to reach out to them as well. Some of us have been put out of other churches, kicked out of family because of what we're doing. We have only each other. <laughs> but I want to tell you, we have each other by the grace of God. <laughs> 
What an immense blessing it is. God has made us family in Him. Most of you know, nobody else in my family are Christians. I've lost them in many ways when I became a Christian. But I have not once looked back with regret about that. I regret that they're not Christians, yeah. But what I gained is a family here with you all. I have a family in South Carolina. I have a family in Brazil. I have a family in Portugal. I have a family in Tennessee. I have a family, you name it. (laughs) But you do too. (laughs) God has given us each other. And I would love for my physical family to be a part of this as well. Who knows someday, maybe by your influence, certainly the Lord is working on them still. But what a blessing that he gave me you by the grace of God. And so we're together as family. Do we look like the early Christians look in their fellowship? How willingly do we give our time for one another? Do you see it as a burden to be here on Sunday? I know for some people there are struggles that make it more difficult. I'm not talking about circumstances like that. I'm just thinking about where is your heart? Is your heart here on Sunday? There are people who would love to be here who can't be. I understand. But there are people who can be here that maybe don't have the desire and the love to be here, that aren't fellows in the sense of, I want to be here together, growing with my brethren. We need it so badly. We need you. Where is your heart? Are you willing to give time I'm not just talking about being here on Sunday or being here on Tuesday. I'm talking about being together with brethren during the week as you have opportunity. Sunday's a great and easy opportunity. Take advantage of that first. It may grow on you how great this is. But do we give our time for one another like they did? Like I said, sometimes it's harder to give our time than it is to give our money. Not just give money, that's easy. But to give my time? Well, now you're messing with where I like to do stuff. I want to be together with my brethren. There's no greater benefit in my life than when I get to be with brethren. I'm thankful for the work I do allows me an opportunity to be with brethren more than perhaps you all because of the restraints with your jobs. My job is being with you. It's what a blessing that is. But I urge you to find ways, make ways, make time to be together with your brethren as much as possible. Do we give time in prayer for one another? Maybe I can't go be with them, but I can be praying for them. Am I doing that? They were doing that the first century, seeking togetherness in every way possible? Do we have a real concern for one another? Are we just kind of loners? I I, I like those people, but, you know, I don't really need them in my life. (laughs) Certainly wouldn't want them just showing up out of the blue sometime. Wow, that would be be embarrassing. No, (laughs) shouldn't be. They are your family. We need each other. And so as we consider these things, if there's there's an issue with this, really the, the problem begins to be fixed with me and with my heart, and when I begin to change the way I consider what fellowship looks like and what it is. Am I being a fellow? That's the question. If our fellows from this congregation had a need, could they count on us? If you had a need that suddenly arose, would you you be able to count on your brethren? Would you think of that? Are we willing to give material? Are we willing to sell something if we had to, to be able to help our brethren if they were in a real dire need. We think about that. If the need were ours, we had a dire need that came up, would we be comfortable asking our brethren to help us meet it, or would we naturally go seek elsewhere? I don't know if I've told you this story, but when I was early in my time in Brazil, I got bad advice on, on how to pay my taxes. And I went for two years without paying any taxes because I thought I was still not considered a permanent resident. And when I got my residency card, the lady at the tax office looked at my debt, which was enormous. They charge interest weekly and monthly on debt you haven't paid. It was close to 100000 of their of their units of money. Uh, I mean, just overwhelming. She looked at that and said, until I hit this button, only you and I know about this debt. <laughs> and so you want me to hit this button? And I said, well, there's somebody else who knows. There's a God above that I serve that knows about that debt. That's my debt. I was misled, but that's my debt. I have to pay it. Hit that button. <laughs> so she did. And I called my dad. <laughs> I was like, Dad, I'm in trouble. I've got a huge debt. Can you give me a loan? Well, he brushed me off. Like, no, <laughs> I'm never going to do that. My, my dad lost one of his sons when he gave him a loan. I'm never going to give you a loan. And so then I called the bank. And the bank wasn't going to give me a loan for that kind of money. And then I called a brother and said, I don't know what to do. Two days later, that was paid. <laughs> he said, the churches that are helping you saw that as a need. They saw that as a tax burden they should have been paying that they know about and you didn't know about. They were happy to pay that. Now, make sure you got your taxes in order, but they were grateful to participate in your need. I mean, it was overwhelming to me. Uh, But that's what we're here for. (laughs) 
Now, we don't want to be irresponsible and abuse that grace. But what a grace. I shouldn't have turned to my parents first or to the bank first. I should have turned to my brethren and said, look, I made a mistake. But it was embarrassing. And I didn't know what to do about it. But God provided in an amazing way. I was amazed when that happened. And I dare say, I need to quit being amazed when God does amazing things. It's just what He does. We need to trust Him. So if something happened in your life that was dire, would you trust in your brethren to help you out? Would you know they were praying for you? And would you know where to find them? <laughs> I think that's we're lacking in that. I think we would understand, yeah, they're, they're praying. Somebody's praying for me. I'm praying for people. I know they're praying for me. But we just don't get together and pray. It's not a regular part of who we are. But in the first century, it was. Peter knew right where to go. <laughs> that would be a great blessing if we knew that we could do that. Are we united in purpose? Are we united in reaching the loss as they were, uh, as Paul was explaining to the Galatians and as those brethren reached out with the right hand of fellowship, even the Paul as he was going out? Are we content just, just being here? What if the one who had taught you had been content just to sit on the church pew? <laughs> what do you think about that? Jesus said, you do to others what you would want them to do to you. And that's in the context of the one who's knocking, seeking, and asking. Therefore, you do to them what you would have them do unto you. Somebody brought you the gospel. <laughs> I don't care in what way it was. Somebody was thinking about you and brought you the gospel. They weren't content just to be sitting on a church pew and receiving. <laughs> do we have the gladness and the generosity, the simplicity of heart? And is the Lord adding to us day by day to our number? And if he's not, and if we don't have that gladness and generosity, I'm not saying we don't, I'm just asking. I want us to think about these things. But if we don't, might it be because we don't consider ourselves really to be fellows with Christ and with one another? How much would we grow if we embrace the fellowship that the Lord has called us to? These people understood that without the gospel that had been preached that day, they were lost. They needed what the apostles brought them. But they also needed to cling to those apostles and then to one another as they were growing in their understanding of what God had called them to. Being fellows really speaks of a shared circumstance. We are together in this. And so it's not ultimately an issue of who we're going to accept into our assembly. That's a part of it. But it's more an issue of who are we going to accept into our hearts so that we can serve them and have them accept us into their hearts and serve us as well. The question is, am I a fellow of Christ and of his people for his sake? And if I'm not, what am I going to do about that? In Acts chapter 2, they told them what to do. They said, what do we do? Peter said, repent. And that every one of you be baptized for the remission of your sins. Be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. That's how you become a fellow with Christ. And you know what the great bonus is? You then get all these other people who are serving Him as well. And their desire is for you. Their desire is so great that as we saw in the first, uh, first century, they're willing to sell their goods, to give of their time, to give their lives in service to one another. That's who we are. It hasn't changed since the first century. We've just sort of gotten comfortable in where we are but we need to see ourselves like they are. Are you a fellow with Christ? If not, that's what he wants for you today. And we want you as well. We want to join together. If we can help you today, we want to be your fellows. We're going to sing this song for your encouragement.